0: this is the permaculture podcast i'm scott mann my guest for this episode is katrina blair author of the wonderful book the wild wisdom of weeds katrina lives in durango colorado at turtle lake refuge home to the turtle lake community farm and wild food csa and the local wildlife cafe in this interview we discuss her book and the 13 plants for human survival including her criteria for selecting these specific plants We also talk about food and the inclusion of wild plants for human health and nutrition, and plants as medicine. Katrina also shares with us how she uses community celebration and festivals as a way to promote positive change, rather than having to fight directly about an issue. She also answers listener questions on which plants have the most potential to feed the world, what the 14th plant is that she would include on her list, and what to do with bindweed, also known as wild morning glory. If you are interested in wild foods, this is a great interview and book to start with. Katrina's inclusion of recipes throughout the book makes eating any of these 13 plants much easier. No digging through internet forums wondering how to prepare dandelion root or what to pair with your chickweed. All of that is included within the covers here. On to Katrina Blair. I'll join you afterwards. Then if you're ready, Katrina, could you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to do what you're doing, and then we can discuss your book.
1: Wonderful. Thanks so much for inviting me to participate. I grew up in Durango, Colorado, and my family had a unique, I guess, a little bit of a unique background because my mom had arthritis when she was 17, so before I was born, and she went 12 years through Western medical treatments and surgeries and drugs and continued to disintegrate with arthritis. And when I was two years old, she got inspired to do a juice fast. And after drinking juices for four days, the pain that has been was chronic for her for 12 years pretty much disappeared. And that was a huge wake-up call for her realizing that there was another route to health. And at two years old, that was my first memory of coming home with this purple popsicle and her telling me, that's not food. <laughs> Eat a grape. And... From that moment on, our family started this tradition of doing green juices twice a day. And so we would do it 20 minutes before breakfast and 20 minutes before dinner. And a green juice was just as simple as going outside and picking some greens, either comfrey we used a lot or sometimes dandelion or sometimes grass, and it usually was wheatgrass, or spinach or parsley or anything green, even if we just bought it from the store. And we'd blend it up in the blender with water and then strain it. Sometimes I add apples or apple juice and drink it. And I think that my mom's orientation towards health and then my dad, he was, he's a mountaineer and an outdoorsman, he introduced me to the wild and to the outdoors very early on. And so my path became really clear that I wanted to combine the outdoors with the health. And for me, that was wild edible foods. And so right after high school, I actually decided to camp out for an entire summer just to eat the wild edibles by my home and I had a bicycle and I would bike up to this camp and stash it in the woods and I learned so much that summer by eating wild edibles although I mostly ate all wild it was there were a, I brought a little bit of cereal with me like buckwheat sunflowers and flax seeds that I would make for breakfast but other than that I really just learned so much and then I continued on to get a degree in college in biology and was able to do several independent studies on wild edibles. The college that I went to was Colorado College and you take one class at a time for a, a month. So I was able to do these independent studies where I could go to the woods for the whole month and then come back and write a paper and continue my intimate studies with the wild plants that way. And so my final project for college was the wild edible and medicinal plants of the San Juan Mountains, which is the mountains right outside of Durango. And then continued my passion for wild edibles with the outdoor world, doing outdoor pursuits and outdoor or outward bound as well. And then eventually went and got a master's program in holistic health education. And then after that was complete, I came back to Durango to start Turtle Lake Refuge, which is a nonprofit focusing on our mission is to celebrate the connection between personal health and wild lands. And that has now been over 16 years of Having a cafe and we grow. We have a two acre farm where we do a lot of education and permaculture practices, as well as wild food CSA. And we make wild food treats that we sell from our commercial kitchen to the different stores. And a lot of education, though, in everything we do. And it's very clearly to encourage land stewardship practices and promote care for the earth in all of our activities. So that led me to writing the book eventually. I did write another recipe book first, which is a it's the story of Turtle Lake Refuge and all these different wild food recipes. And that was published in 2009, self-published. And it's a fun little spiral bound book that has a lot of information and stories and recipes in it. And then Chelsea Green approached me saying, we'd like you to write a book. And luckily I had been wanting to write this book for a long time. for I've been knowing it needed to be written since probably even before the other book was written. But in 2010, I did start taking notes. And then when Chelsea Green approached me, it was like, yes, I do have a book that needs to be written. And the reason why The Wild Wisdom of Weeds wanted to be written is because I'm so passionate about wild plants and i noticed that there's many plants in the world that are being discriminated against (laughs) and it's the wild weeds the ones that are so common whether it's they're commonly found in edges of gardens or in lawns or on roadways or trails and in my county we have a weed control that goes out and sprays herbicides on these plants to try to eradicate them and as a harvester of wild foods that was horrifying to witness your plants that you were lovingly wanting to gather or appreciating being killed in this way. And in addition to that, the sprayers of the county happen to be my nearest neighbors. (laughs) So I have a very intimate perspective on the herbicide practices as far as the big tanks that they're stored in and the big trucks that come to refuel the tanks and the smell and the damage. And I'm also a beekeeper and the herbicides when they're sprayed onto the plants that the bees forage which all these wild 13 are bee forage plants it was disastrous to the bee colonies so that's another motivation why this information felt like it really needed to come out into the world to bring our awareness to these practices as humans and quickly change them where really my goal is that as a human community we immediately stop the practice of using herbicides and chemical fertilizers on our land to protect the environment and all the creatures living here. And the herbicides, of course, are quite harmful, but even the chemical fertilizers, the runoff goes into the oceans, which is creating a massive die-off on some of the aquatic life there and causing quite a bit of harm. So by appreciating these wild plants and realizing how valuable they are for food and medicine and all these other practices we can sidestep that entire problem. So the book began from that motivation. And also partly these plants that I speak about in the book, these 13 plants, they're some of the most accessible foods and medicines to humanity. So although I love to go into the wild and harvest a lot of diversity of wild plants for food and medicine, these 13 plants Anybody can find, even in the city. You don't even have to go into the wild, pristine locations to access these plants. They're growing along the sidewalk crack or along the edges of buildings or in a city park. And so they have an incredible availability to humanity that is such a gift and a resource. And that is an exciting shift of the mind. I really appreciate this permaculture concept of when we see something as a problem, as soon as we shift our lens, instead of looking at it that way, where is the resource of this problem? And these wild plants just do that so eloquently. Okay, so there's an abundance. <laughs> They're taking over, as some people say. If we shift that, all of a sudden we are so rich with a resource that is beneficial to the health of the human. And I also look at these plants not only do they regenerate our own bodies with incredible amounts of minerals and vitamins and nutrients. These are trace minerals that we don't often get through standard agriculture. But in addition to that, these plants help regenerate the earth. So they grow where there is disturbance and compacted soil. And when we allow them to do that as a human race, they're actually cleaning up our mess. (laughs) So humans are the best disturbers of soil and compactors and we like to disturb land but we don't like to do it we just do it it's just how you know wherever we're living we're going to build roads and homes and walk and scuff up the land and the native plants that used to live there can't live there anymore their environment has been altered too much and so these wild plants these wild weeds come in they can live there they're very resilient and versatile and adaptable so they can come in and set in their roots, which helps break up the compact soils and then their leaves compost each year, rebuilding topsoil and providing more mineral accessibility to that area. And ultimately, they're bringing back the diversity and basically a climactic ecosystem where the native plants once had. And then through disturbance, that changes, and it's these wild weeds that are the vehicles and. basically the heroes of the 21st century for humans as we disturb the land. They come and help regenerate it with us.
0: In choosing these 13 plants, two of the things that you've mentioned for why you selected them was because of the availability in just about any human inhabited environment and also the ability to rebuild the soil. What are some of the other choices that you made in coming up with this list of 13 plants?
1: Great question. In addition to being accessible, and regenerators of the land. The other qualifications that I chose were that they were edible first, so that they were food sources first, and then also medicines. But I didn't choose a plant that was only a medicine. I wanted it to be a food first and then also have medicinal qualities. Those were the other big component. And of course, being able to grow in a diverse range of habitat, which means they can grow it sea level and high elevations and cold temperatures, hot temperatures, dry, wet. So really that versatility of where their niche is, their ecosystem. And the common niche really is disturbed land. They're the succession plants, the primary and secondary succession plants that come in most any habitat.
0: The kinds of plants that wherever there is disturbed soil, we can find them.
1: That's right. In fact, you can just go outside wherever you live and scuff up the land take a shovel or, and clear off whatever vegetation is growing there, a little plot, and then just start watering it. And these m- many of the 13 plants will actually start to grow because the seeds are already in the soil from wind. And or just over time, these seeds know how to travel and set themselves in the land.
0: <laughs> Which makes them very useful for human needs as well as those of the environment.
1: And that's the exciting part also is that this book is intended to really allow humans to trust this changing time. It can be quite alarming to witness how fast our environment is changing, and there's a lot of problems and risks that we're experiencing. And these wild plants, for me, feel like a beacon of hope, even though it's maybe not ideal as far as we would prefer pristine land to be left pristine. And we prefer development to be kept at a minimum and that our environment is treated with utmost integrity, but we're witnessing a lot of this not happening. We're witnessing the opposite, where development is exceedingly growing at a fast pace, and many wild areas are being altered very rapidly through the requirements of resources for our industrial civilized livelihood. And in the process of this, these wild plants offer this, this hope and this deep trust that, okay, so here we are. Things are going crazy, <laughs> and still there's food and medicine around us. And I think one of the exciting things for me is that the more we connect with these wild plant species, I'm realizing and everyone who engages in this way, I think, might have a similar experience, but these plants are brilliant, and if we treat them, if we come to them and introduce ourselves before we harvest them and connect with them as a being, they have so much to impart to us, so much wisdom. In addition to just their straight resources of food and nutrients and all of that, but there's something even more powerful when we connect with them as an intelligent life force that is transferring a lot of information to our bodies. When we eat them, they become us on a very cellular level and this wisdom of how they know how to survive, they know how to adapt, that actually gets imparted to us as a human and in addition to it helping us survive and adapt to this changing time, it reminds us how to care for the earth because we become part of the earth. All of a sudden we become better stewards of the land and that is also a huge gift of that information coming into us. It helps us become more of a wild human species that can live more sustainably with the given resources at hand and in more harmony with nature's rhythm of efficiency.
0: Is it fair to say then that reconnecting with These weeds with plants directly as part of our regular cycle as diet and medicine helps in a way to rewild the human being?
1: It does. That's exactly, I love how you put that, to rewild the human being. I feel that's one of the first steps that we can do is start to ingest the wild food and it brings us back into that integrity of wildness not only just because the plants themselves make our bodies more efficient. So for example, if we're just beginning that process, we go outside and we harvest a dandelion and we might pull up the entire thing, although of course you're not gonna get all the root (laughs) and that's a good thing, so it's gonna come back, which is great, but I did this just yesterday and I made a dandy candy and this is January, so I actually had to dig under the snow a little bit, but there it was, a dandelion and a lot of the old leaves withered and yellowed, and even some of them already composting. But in the very center, in the rosette, there's all these tiny little new green leaves that were starting to emerge. So I dug out the root, and what's really beautiful about digging dandelion roots in January is that the sugars concentrate into the root, and the roots become much sweeter at this time of the year. So I dug up this dandelion, which was very exciting. Even though the ground was frozen, it, I was able to get a shovel in and pop a little bit out And I washed it up and chopped up the whole thing, the root and the greens. And I mixed it with figs, soaked figs and rock cacao (laughs) nibs. And I made these little balls. And this is dandy candy. And, of course, just eating the direct dandelion would even be preferred right there. But I was teaching a class, and so I also wanted to make it delicious. And so I made it into this little candy with figs and cacao also. But integrating these wild plants into our meals and into our rituals of celebration and coming together in community. What is fun is that everyone who eats a little bit of that automatically gets connected to the land where it got harvested and to the wisdom of the roots that pulled in all these nutrients and that were connected in symbiotic relationships with microorganisms and even the trees and the bushes nearby. And of course, this dandelion has been growing here for year after year as a perennial. And so each season it gets deeper and deeper in its relationships. And that's something that is quite profound when we compare that to commercial agriculture, which tends to grow annual crops. Corn, broccoli, wheat, whatever, these are crops that get planted and then harvested in one season. And so there's no time for those roots and those relationships to get established and go deeper and deeper. And, of course, the nutrient content doesn't have time to even get as dense as a
0: perennial dandelion. One of the things that I really appreciate about your book is I've read Sam Thayer's books on foraging, Arthur Haynes as well, Ancestral Plants. I really like their books for the amount of information that they have, but one thing that you share with us throughout with these 13 weeds is that you share recipes, things that people can make with these plants rather than just going out and going, okay, I have a pile of greens, now what do I do? How did you come about developing those recipes?
1: found that i wanted to share my passion with wild foods with people and similar just realizing oh this is going to help humanity the more of us that are wild food eaters the better of a human population we can be. The more awareness that we have of these plants and their uses, we will naturally start to respect the plants and their environments better. So it felt important that I share these wild plants with my community. About 16 years ago, started a little cafe, a wild food cafe called Local Wildlife. And in the process of making these wild foods into something that is palatable, the human tongue, especially when we're used to eating a lot of refined foods. Yeah, you've got to be creative making sure that the potent bitters or the interesting textures don't dominate in the beginning. And so making them tasty. And what I did is I just experimented. I would go out and harvest and then just allow what else do I have in abundance or what's available and then just put combinations together. But it's not just me. You know, after sixteen years of doing this, I have many people who come through who become wild food chefs and they may never have worked with wild foods before, but after a very short time anyway, it's a relationship that evolves, I think, when we're open to just listening and then we want to serve our community the best food we can and then it's these plants that sort of sculpt the recipe themselves. And of course there's been some that weren't so successful also. <laughs> but over time those get we not repeat that one. <laughs> these other ones work
0: I grew up with a mother who was in food service and managed restaurants. I remember some of those when developing new recipes for some of the places where she worked, the cooking in the kitchen and the new smells and walking in and going, I don't think that's quite right.
1: <laughs> Something is not right, yes.
0: You mentioned the lo- local wildlife cafe and introducing wild foods to others. What is your wild food CSA look like?
1: Yeah, I think the wild CSA has a lot to offer. and. I think it can be a standalone program or it can just be in- integrated into another farm CSA. And I think the reason why it's so valuable is that being able to utilize all the plants growing on the farm. So a lot of farms spend a huge amount of time weeding. And rather than just discard those plants or give them to the compost pile, to actually get value for them and therefore get value for the work that you're putting into harvesting them. And I find that actually when we hold the mindset that we're harvesting instead of just weeding, there's a much more enjoyable experience. (laughs) And so harvesting, you start to take more care and you start to awaken to the realization of, oh, this amaranth, this pigweed is going to go into making green chips, or it's going to go into a salad mix, or it's going to go and be dried into a green superfood for the winter or all this wild mallow that has taken over the garden area where we want to be planting other things, we're going to harvest it, roots and all, and then use it to make a mallow lotion or just a mallow green juice or eat these other food recipes. And so it's an exciting way to enhance something that already is going to be a resource, such as a wild CSA farm, a CSA, but to then integrate these wild foods into its almost value-added <laughs> practices by bringing in these additional resources. It acts a medium for a lot of creativity. (laughs) Okay, wow, I have a lot of thistle. And one fun part is that wild foods, a lot of people are interested in learning more about the wild foods. So offering a wild food CSA can actually call in a lot more volunteers to the farm just because of the learning process. And that's what we've found is that it's a lot of labor to harvest and then process we don't just give them thistle root necessarily in a weekly bag but we'll process it into a thistle root chai tea and give it to them in that way or we'll actually make the lotion in the beginning I think people need to hand herald what do I do with this new wild thing? So a lot of information and labels as well as actually made products help. But in that process it can attract a lot of volunteers to come and help you do the labor. So then it's a social, a little more social event where there's education that's happening simultaneously. And that way it's not so, if you're just paying somebody to do all this, it could be a little harder. But if it's a if it's a kind of an exchange of learn and work at the same time, then it becomes feasible. And when we did, when we've done our CSAs, this will be our fourth year, we decided to keep it pretty small to begin with. We've just asked, that 10 people families can be part of our wild CSA. So we kept it on a small scale just to make sure that we could handle the amount of labor it took and make sure that we have enough wild foods. And anyway, it's been no problem as far as I think we could expand it to a bigger, larger community if we wanted to. Just it depends on we have a refrigerator that we put all the bags in for when people pick it up. And just logistically, each farm has to figure out how they can manage how many participants. But For us, we kept it small in the beginning, but it is a great resource that adds an additional income into the business.
0: And is your commercial kitchen also a part of that because that allows you to create secondary and tertiary
1: products? Yes, and we do use our commercial kitchen to make these extra foods. That's right. Yeah, and for us, we have a wild food lunch at our cafe every Tuesday and Friday, and our wild CSA pickup day is Tuesday so we have people come and they come to lunch oftentimes and then they pick up their goodie bag and anyway but that morning it's a very bustly morning in the kitchen in the growing room spaces we actually got kicked out of the kitchen and we have to set up tables outside (laughs) to do a lot of our wild food processing because it's quite not dirty but there's roots and there's big leaves and twigs and it's quite (laughs) we take up a lot of space. So anyway, we're out in the carport under tarps with tables. And then when we need to make something in the kitchen, we'll go in and make something. But then we do a lot of our processing out outside. And that's actually really fun, too.
0: It just sounds like it would be a lot of fun to be surrounded by friends and family and volunteers and be processing and preparing those wild foods.
1: Yeah, it's really beautiful when you see all these flowers and roots and leaves and stems laid out in piles, big piles on various tables and everybody's working on their little piece. It's very exciting because it's new and creative ideas start coming and then we're labeling and packaging in little ways. We're like Santa's elves with wild food.
0: <laughs> that mention of community leads to a question from one of the listeners, Sean. She was wondering about the Dandelion Festival and what you do at the farm to build community.
1: Oh, that's a great question. I think when we're wanting to bring wild foods back into our communities, it's all about coming together and making it a celebration. And I found that that's the most effective way to fight something. For example, for me, I wanted, and I still do, (laughs) want to end the practice of spraying herbicides on public lands. And that could be considered a fight. And at times I've had to fight, but I've found the most success comes when I promote something instead of fight something. So if I fight against, that actually drains my energy quicker than when I have energy to promote. So it's almost, okay, I want to end this, so I'm going to promote this. (laughs) I want to end herbicides, so I'm going to promote dandelions. And that was the motivation for starting the Dandelion Festival, was to shift our counties and cities' spraying practices and bring more of an awareness to the organic land stewardship movement. So we started the Dandelion Festival as a celebration where We harvested all these dandelions and gave it to the breweries in town. We actually have six breweries in our little small town (laughs) to make beer, and they made a dandelion beer for the festival. We invited speakers and lots of music and a lot of booths. It's just a big festival day in the park, and it's around May Day, so we had a big Maypole dance as well and a lot of activities, and it's worked. It's almost there's a momentum that's been building now. This will be our seventh annual dandelion festival, and... People have come to just expect it. It's their favorite festival the entire year in our town. It's a very, very fun, playful movement that now is just gathering support of more and more people automatically saying, of course I want that. Of course that's what needs to happen. So I think it's really important that we bring our community together in celebration towards where we want to go. And that helps end things we don't want without having to focus on the fight so much.
0: It shifts that perspective to a positive one,
1: Right, and much more people want to join in on something that's fun <laughs> than something that ooh, that sounds stressful. <laughs> yeah, that's right, and it, it's worked. we've shifted from having no organic parks in our town. now over a third of the parks have been managed organic are managed organically, and it's a continual process of learning, and we're going to continue adding more parks in and keeping the education going. And, of course, it's a slow process. It's not always easy to shift overnight an entire system, a municipality, and all their practices and equipment and everything. But if we don't give up, we're not going to go away. It's going to happen, even if it's at a little slower pace than we'd all like.
0: It's one of the changes for me in practicing permaculture is that now I'm thinking more about generations from now and not just tomorrow. And the municipality that I live in has been here for well over 100 years. I can't expect that it's going to be different tomorrow or the next day.
1: That's right. And that takes patience, sometimes more than other times, but that's the good attitude to keep sustaining our own self. Okay, little steps. And sometimes... I'm noticing it's, okay, two steps forward and then one step back. (laughs) Then hopefully the dance keeps going.
0: I have a friend who's a rock climber and a mountaineer, and I asked her once, how do you climb a mountain? And she just said, one step at a time.
1: That's so beautiful. I have a little song I'm going to sing you. It's a sweet song that came when I was on a walkabout one summer. It just goes... I put one foot in front of the other, and I do trust this path that I am on. I ask the divine for guidance. Lead me by the joy in my heart. And I find when I'm walking, I'll repeat that song like a mantra, and it just really helps connect me to those challenging times when we have to just keep, oh yeah, just one foot (laughs) in front of the other.
0: And thank you for sharing that. I believe that is the first live performance on an episode of the show. All right. (laughs) Following up with Sean's question, she had one more about the plants specific to the book, which then leads into two other questions that came from Jeffrey. But Sean's other question was, she was wondering which of the 13 plants do you feel has the greatest potential to feed the world and why would you choose that one?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Well, It's interesting. There's the grass family has been notorious for providing so many food crops, whether it's the barley or the rye or the wheat, the grains that come from the grass family, and even the grass alone itself is a complete protein that can be used for food. Even when it's a young blade, it has all the essential amino acids for our bodies to survive. But that's a hard question. Let's see. I don't know that I want to settle on grass as the one, but I, that is, I think early on I when I was in college and someone asked me, like, if there was one plant that you could live on, I did say it was grass, both because you can eat the greens, the roots, the seeds. So it's interesting because dandelion which would be another one it's also a complete protein and the roots are a little more meaty like a potato and the greens of course are very nutritious and then even the seeds are packed with nutrients or can be blended into making a milk or flour.
0: Or if I could take that question in another direction okay without necessarily settling on one that would for feeding the world what would be the first plant that you would recommend people experiment with and try
1: okay great and then as you said that amaranth was the other plant and lamb's quarter (laughs) both of those two actually came up as such strong plants for surviving because of they're also complete proteins packed with nutrients the seeds the quinoa and the amaranth seeds so easy to harvest year-round Even in the winter, the seeds are still contained in the dried up stalks. And then the greens are also really high protein sources. So they would be another great one that could feed the world. And actually, amaranth used to be 80% of South American culture's diet and nutrition and protein content. So it really did feed the human population way back in the Mayan and the Inca time. So that's a fun plant to bring back to life is the amaranth. And as far as the very first plant I would encourage someone to try, I actually think mallow or chickweed would be a great plant to go for because they're very mild flavors. Mallow is just a real mellow, excuse me, it's a very mild and mellow gentle flavor. And chickweed also is very delicious, like a spring green but without any bitter. And then purslane is another one that's juicy and a little sour. But not bitter at all. Mallow, chickweed, and purslane are three fantastic plants to just start to nibble on a little bit at a time and see if you like it.
0: That gives us then four plants to feed and to save the world, and then three to start with.
1: Perfect. But,
0: and that's one of the things that I thought about was getting to a list of just 13 useful plants with how many edible plants there are in the world, and why I was interested in your criteria of how you got to where you were and those 13 kind of do become the essentials. To whittle them down much further becomes that much more difficult.
1: It really is. It's interesting. And the question of what is the 14th plant, in making that 13 list, I did have some runner-ups. And I was thinking, oh, somebody in the mint family would be important. But then when I really went into it, I didn't see mint growing absolutely everywhere. It wasn't where I could walk off an airplane and see it growing in the cracks of the walkway. (laughs) But these other plants, I did see that in those contexts. So mint is so popular, but then there's so many different kinds of mints and they have so many different varieties and flavors and tastes that I just, it ended up not getting into the list for that reason. And like nettles, but nettles is such an abundant plant, but it likes a little bit of a unique ecosystem to grow. Nettles like wetness and require that. So it didn't quite make it in, and then there was another plant that was almost on the 14th. It would have been the 14th. It's called fillery or crane's bill or stork's bill. Anyway, it's in the geranium family, and it's not quite as tasty. It's okay. know, so it tastes a little bit like carrots, like the greens, but it wasn't quite as much of a food. And then really, I see it a lot, but I don't see it everywhere in a similar way. So these 13 really just. Showed up and held their ground. Like, we're the ones.
0: <laughs> and they worked out to be such a wonderful list for anybody who wants to get started with wild foods, especially wild weeds. The last question that I have from Jeffrey was that he's overrun with field bindweed, also known as wild morning glory, and was wondering if you know of any use for it.
1: Yeah, field bindweed did not make the 13. <laughs> and the reason is that it's not a food. It is a medicine, though, and it's a laxative. It can be used as a cathartic laxative. You have to be a little bit careful not ingesting too much. But the good thing about bindweed is that it is an amazing crop that helps prevent both moisture from leaving the landscape and also soil from being blown away. So it actually helps conserve topsoil. And as we know, any gardener may know this, but the bindweed roots just go down and down and it doesn't matter how much you try to pull them up you're never going to get the full root and it's always going to come back eventually but the good thing is that by doing that it's drying up nutrients that we wouldn't get into our annual garden plants and so if we think of it as it's a topsoil conserver and a good water conserver and then when we do pull it out I even think of when I'm weeding bindweed I'm still harvesting it for its nutrients and then I'll use it as a mulch. So I'll pull up as much of the root as possible and then flip it upside down and let it compost back into the soil to replenish the nutrients of the land. So yeah, it's not a food but it is a medicine and it does have value.
0: One last question that I was wondering because we've talked about the plants as food and as medicine, are you looking at the plants as medicine just from a nutritional standpoint as something that we take into our body that helps to heal us? We're also looking at specific uses as particular types of medicine.
1: Oh, that's a great question. Yes, actually both. Each of these 13 plants are food. And when food, you know, when I like Hippocrates saying, let food be thy medicine. So when we eat these wild plants as our food, we actually don't need further medicine because they keep our bodies efficient and tuned and healthy. But then when we find ourselves out of balance or excess in different ways, and we need a medicine, or we're just in a situation where we got bit by a snake or we got an infection or whatever these plants can be a specific medicine use also such as plantain it's a fantastic plant as a medicine to draw out infection or mallow is a fantastic medicine for drawing out congestion and so yeah they act as first food that really could be the medicine by not having to get ever get sick but then they also can be utilized specifically for medicinal purposes.
0: As a follow-up to that, do you have any resources that you would recommend to someone who would like to learn more about plant medicine?
1: Oh, as far
0: as... Other books, if there are particular lectures that you would recommend someone see, videos on YouTube, really any kind of a resource where people could really begin to learn about this?
1: Yeah, there is a five-DVD set. It's by Marcus Rothkranz, and I think it's Wild Food for Free something like that. But if you looked at Marcus Ross Kranz and Wild Food, he has a great DVD set of different people around the country and the world, I think, that are utilizing wild foods into their practices and their diets and their lifestyles. So that's a nice way of just seeing how other people, what their take on it all is and what their advice is and how they do it. So that's one. And there's definitely some other great books of local resources. I think because we all live in it- different places certainly the common ones such as in the book they can be found everywhere but then there's regional plants that only grow in these specific places and so finding a local person who could take you out on a plant hike is invaluable because you get to go and meet the plant in person and go with someone who can you know safely say yes that's definitely what this is try it and you don't feel quite so insecure when you're just first learning and you're not absolutely sure is this the right plan? So I think going out with other people in the field is really useful.
0: Thank you very much for that.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. And I'm actually in a place also where I'm traveling and I'm speaking and so I enjoy going to new places and meeting new people and taking people out when I'm there. So put that out into the world. Who knows if I'm welcome to receive calls or connections if that wants to happen.
0: And I will certainly give people plenty of information to find you on um, both through the website, through the book and elsewhere. As we draw this interview to a close, is there anything else that you'd like to add to the conversation for the listeners?
1: Well, I'm very excited and inspired by the enthusiasm that I've been witnessing with many people around the world who are getting interested in bringing more wild into their lifestyle and their diets and using it as medicine. And so I'm just really inspired by that and appreciative of the rewilding that is happening currently with Our human societies. So, I guess I just give thanks to everyone who has some interest here. And I look forward to continuing to keep learning together as we go deeper.
0: Thank you for joining me today, Katrina, to discuss your book, your work, and to answer those listener questions. I really appreciate it and wish you all the best in your travels.
1: Thank you so much, Scott. I really appreciate being in part of this interview.
0: And that was Katrina Blair. Read Katrina's work and investigate the world around you to learn about the plants we call weeds the ones that grow in disturbed soil but have potential to heal earth and our bodies. As we eat better and feel better and reconnect with a sense of place, we can move from destruction to sustainable, and then from sustainable to regenerative practices. Until the next time, spend each day creating a better world by taking care of earth, yourself, and each other.